0: The written notice of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatani, which means, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there there, in front of Jesus, saw how he died. He said, "Surely this man was the Son of God." Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of of James and the younger, James the younger, and of Joseph, the Salome. In Galilee, these women have followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up from uh, with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So, as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathaea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead, Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some um, linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid.
1: Thanks, John. Please keep that passage open. it would be good to, to have it in front of you there. Um, and and before we start, I want to thank Aaron Ball for, for building this amazing cross. But I also want to draw attention to how crazy an idea it would have been for someone in Jesus' day to have had a decorative cross. The Roman uh, philosopher Cicero actually said that, uh, called for no Roman citizen to even mention the word cross due to how shameful it was, let alone have a a cross up here as something which we celebrate as good. It's been the the world's most horrific form of execution ever devised. The agony of crucifixion was so much that they needed to use, they needed to find a new word to describe the type of pain endured on the cross. So they came up with excruciating, literally, from the cross, Seven-inch metal spikes were driven through victims' most sensitive nerve centers, the wrists and the feet or the ankles, as their bodies would, would involuntarily twitch and, and pulsate in response. The, the slow, agonizing death was actually caused by, by um, exhaustion or asphyxiation as the, the victim tried to hold themselves up so as not to choke on their blood. And sometimes that would take a matter of days for it to be complete. But Jesus, this excruciating death actually came after the the public shame of being stripped naked. We saw that a little bit last week. Mocked, whipped with 39 lashes so that his back was so traumatized that he wasn't actually able to carry the cross beam up the hill we read in verse 21 there that a bloke called Simon from Cyrene was was taken and forced to carry the cross because Jesus couldn't he would have died right there on the spot and yet with all this physical pain don't you think it's intriguing that Mark talks in such a matter-of-fact kind of way look at verse 25 for example Mark writes this it was nine in the morning when they crucified him you see, the, the physical pain of the cross wasn't Mark's main message here, which begs the question, doesn't it, what was Mark's main message? So today I've called this reflection Lessons from the Cross. And I think Mark shows us three crucial lessons that we see in this passage. The first, uh, down there on your sheet, we've got the characters of the cross, the achievement of the cross, and the now and the not yet of the cross. So first of all, the characters of the cross. Central to Mark's teaching about the cross is a character reversal. The Son of God humbly took on the role of sinful humanity. Look at verse 21. It won't be immediately obvious straight away. Sorry, verse 22. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They might be asking, well, what's that got to do with Jesus taking on the role of sinful humanity? Well, it's actually very relevant. Jesus is being led out of Jerusalem to Golgotha to die he's being led out of the place where God met with his people to Golgotha and this is packed full of Old Testament significance you see if you bear with me in the Old Testament before the temple in Jerusalem was built God's people camped around a big tent called the tent of meeting and that's where God met with his people but if a person sinned that person became defiled, as it was known, by that sin. Unable to be with this holy God or among his people. And so they were sent outside of the camp. They were removed. Because you see, a holy God cannot embrace the defiled, the sinful, into his holy presence and into his people. There's a relational cost to sin. But there's also a legal cost. Again, in the Old Testament, if you'd bear with me, for someone who'd sinned, justice for that sin had to be done. And it was often done outside of God's place, outside the camp. Exodus 29, for example, says that as a sacrifice for sin, you shall burn the flesh of a bull outside the camp. It is a sin offering. So the bull, or indeed sometimes the lamb, became a substitute which took God's righteous anger against that person's sin. That animal would be condemned in that person's place outside of the camp. Or even for someone who'd been sinned against, that that, that sacrifice would wash them clean from the stain, the defilement left by, by someone else's grievous sin against them. And once that animal had died outside the camp, the person, defiled either by their own sin or by that of someone else, was then, could re-enter God's place into God's people, undefiled, pure, spotless. You see, Jesus was being led out of God's place, outside of the camp, outside of God's people in God's city, Jerusalem. He was fulfilling the Old Testament sacrifice system. The perfect son of God took on the role of a human sinner who needed to be separated from God, sin that wasn't his own. There was no animal in this sacrifice, do you notice? Because he was the the sacrifice. He was the substitute. He was the lamb of God standing in our place about to take God's righteous anger against his people's sin and defilement. Can you see the depth of our God's humility to give up the glories of heaven? Not to only come to earth as the perfect son of God, but for that son of God to be led away from God's people, from God's place, like a criminal. Indeed, verse 27, they crucified two criminals with him. Prophet Isaiah said he was numbered amongst the transgressors. So firstly, in the, in the character reversal that Mark's showing us, God the Son, Jesus Christ, humbly took the role of sinful humanity. But Mark also shows us another character reversal. Sinful humanity arrogantly taking on the role of God. Look at verse 26. The written notice of the charge against Jesus, as above on, his, on, on the cross, read, The king of the Jews. You see what's going on there? Jesus is the king. But here we have humans mocking the king as if he isn't the king. And in this way, we are trying to be our own king. That's what we do as human beings. We throw the king off his throne, sit ourselves down and and start mocking him. You know, Good Friday was only ever a rehash of the Garden of Eden where we rejected God's law, appointed ourselves as our own lawmakers and began mocking the one who has legal authority to throw us into hell for our rebellion. Verse 29, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. Verse 31, in the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him, saying amongst themselves, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. You know, you've got the, the great irony of this is that if Jesus had saved himself, he wouldn't have been able to save us. There'd be no forgiveness for sins. If he had got down from that cross, there'd be no good news to believe in. Verse 32, even those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And you may be thinking, do you know what? I know I'm a sin. I know I'm a sin, I know I'm, I'm imperfect. But you know what? I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that if I was there. But friends, every time we sin, 30,000 times a day, on a good day in my case, in word, thought and deed, we spit on Jesus saying, no, thank you, I'll be my own king. Every time we sin, we give him that crown of thorns and take his, crown, his kingly crown for our, ourselves. By nature and choice, we are sinners. That's what the Bible says. You know, before getting here this morning, you know, I have sinned and I'm sure you have too in our careless words, our fears, our lusts, our desires, our selfish attitudes. And that's before we even get to our flagrant acts of rebellion where we literally say, no, thank you, God, by which the writer to the Hebrews says we're crucifying Jesus all over again and subjecting him to open shame. So Mark's first lesson about the cross is all about the characters and this character reversal. While well, Jesus humbly took on the role of sinful humanity, sinful humanity arrogantly took on the role of God. And we did so in order to kill him. I held the hammer and you held the nails. So that's the first lesson, the character of the cross. What about the second one, the achievement of the cross? And you might be thinking, oh, I know about this bit. This is where it gets good. But you know what? We may be conditioned to think that the cross was all about what God achieved for us, first and foremost. But actually, the Bible says that the cross was first about what God achieved for himself. You heard that before? Again, this won't be immediately obvious, but look at verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So again, bear with me. Darkness is a biblical picture used throughout scripture of God's righteous anger against sin. And here, as Jesus dies dies god's anger was made visible literally as the di- daytime turned to night for three hours can you imagine that Nighttime in the middle of the day you see the cross was the point in human history where god's anger was fully poured out how could a god of justice not be angry at sinful injustice he wouldn't be a god of justice anymore but actually that poses a problem that poses a real problem for a god who wants to welcome sinners back to himself it, it poses a real problem Because in order to do that, he'd have to act unjustly. For a just God to welcome us unjust sinners back to himself, he would have to act corruptly, like a corrupt police officer or a corrupt judge. Do you see the issue? But the cross was God's just solution to that issue, to that problem. Not that it was ever a problem for God. I want to speak reverently, but you you see what I mean. God himself, in Jesus Christ, bore his own anger at sin. So that his justice would be fully met in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so that having taken our punishment on himself, he could, in perfect justice, welcome us back to himself. Put another way, perhaps confusingly, perhaps not. In perfect, uh, what happened on the cross, at the cross, the righteous God righteously made unrighteous people righteous by dying for our unrighteousness. The perfect God perfectly made us imperfect sinners perfect by removing our imperfection. The cross was first and foremost about God and what he achieved for himself so as to bring us back into himself. The cross meant that God could justly welcome unjust sinners back to himself without compromising his justice, without compromising his holy character. How could he do that? And we see that in verse 34. Have a look at that. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now let's not get this bit wrong. This isn't Jesus feeling like he's the Father's rejected him, but it's okay, Jesus, he's still there. No, this is God rejecting Jesus. This is God forsaking Jesus. Why would he do that? Well, it's because God the Father really is angry at Jesus here. He's furious. He's fuming. God the Father really condemned God the Son, so that you'd never be condemned. God the Father really turned away from God the Son so that he would never turn away from you. God the Father really transferred all of your sins onto God the Son so that he would never hold one of your sins against you. God the Father directed every fibre of his anger against God the Son so that he would never direct one ounce of anger against you. That's why it's called Good Friday. This is good news. It's gospel. Gospel news. Of course, if you haven't given your sin to Jesus, this isn't Good Friday. This is Horrific Friday. This is like a a horrific picture of the judgment waiting for human beings, for all those who do not give their sin to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what sin costs. But of course, it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus has died for your sins on your behalf. God has redirected his anger against your sin towards Jesus. And do you know what? That was always the plan. This isn't some kind of, oh, God, God cooked up a nice idea 2000 years ago. This was always the plan. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of you will know these aren't random words, right? These are, these are words taken from Psalm 22, a chapter in the old testament a psalm a chapter which predicts the sufferings of god's coming king jesus is effectively saying by owning these words and identifying with them he's effectively saying do you know what i'm that suffering king i am him let me read some of those verses from that from that psalm written 600 years uh, roughly before um, this event psalm 22 says these things my god my god why have you forsaken me Many balls surround me. All my bones are out of joint. My mouth is dried up and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. A pack of villains pierce my hands and pierce my feet. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Jesus is saying that was about me. Indeed, his killers unwittingly fulfilled their part, didn't they? Not only by piercing his hands and his feet to the cross, but verse 24, for casting lots for his clothing. Verse 26, by, resp- by responding to his empty mouth, his dry mouth, excuse me, by, uh, by putting a, a sponge of vinegar up to him. You see, the Old Testament promised that this coming king would be rejected by God the Father as he bore his holy and right wrath against his people's sin by dying for it. That's always been the plan. But you know what? The cross didn't only achieve the satisfaction of God's anger. No, with his wrath removed, the cross also achieved the vast outpouring of God's gracious love to us as people. Look at verse 37 to 38. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And to understand Mark's lesson about what the cross achieved, we really have to to get to grips with the significance of this curtain, which is about 30 feet high, about 30 feet wide, and about 30 centimeters thick. Okay, This is more like the temple wall than the temple curtain. And it's really, really significant because what, what used to happen is whilst the people of God could enter God's place, the temple, um th- there was this 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 temple curtain stood between the sinners, the people of God, and the holy of holies, as it was called. The the very unbridled and full presence of holy God. So long as sin remained, that curtain hung. So you see what's going on here. Because Jesus took away our sin and defilement and God's anger at it, the door to God's presence and restore relationship with him has literally been torn open top to bottom. It's been torn open for anyone to walk into without any fear of condemnation. The worst of sinners, the defiled, the broken, anyone who'd come is welcomed into the holy of holies. The unbridled presence of the Lord of the universe. Let's not get used to that. One proof that Jesus' sacrifice worked was that this barrier which divided us from God has been removed. The dam has been torn down and the floodwaters of God's vast love roar over us. In Christ, his full and almighty presence is now open to every person who, by Jesus Christ and by him alone, would enter through that that curtain. Obvious question, have you done that? By the cross, God graciously saves people like you and me. Did you notice the emphasis in Mark's account on people? Verse 39, the centurion's literally just killed Jesus and he finds salvation at the foot of the cross. Verse 40 to 41, there at the foot of the cross are women, Mary Magdalene, a former prostitute, and, and Jesus's own mother, Mary, who, who previously denied and doubted Jesus's claims as to who he was. And you notice there, verse 40, what are they doing? They're there taking some punishment themselves for their sins against Jesus. No, they're watching from a distance. Do you see the picture? The cross is saving people like you and me who should be on that cross, but as free people, are they watching from a distance? Famous verse in 1 Peter, Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous, that's him, instead of us, the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. But before we move on to Mark's final lesson from this section, there's something else here to savour, which I think is neglected a lot when we talk about the cross. Remember the, the animal outside the camp who took away the defilement of both those who'd sinned and those who'd been defiled by the sin of others against them. Well, do you know what? There'll be people here today, in fact, I know there are people here today, who are carrying the scars of other people's sin against them every single day you carry those scars violent verbal sexual emotional sin against you and perhaps today is the first time you'll have heard that God in Christ has not only taken away your own sin but he has washed you clean of every stain left by that sin done against you Undefiled, spotless, pure. Like the restored Old Testament believer, in Christ we are no longer defiled by our own sin or that done against us. We're no longer damaged goods. By the cross of Christ, that dividing curtain has been torn down and we are brought back into the camp, into the forgiven and washed people of God, the place of God, the church. And we're now free to enjoy a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. This this freedom begins now and will take us into eternity because nothing stands between us and that God. This is a freedom and grace that he achieved for us by the cross and by the cross alone. So that's the second lesson. And finally, much, much more briefly, I don't think my voice has got any more. Thanks, bro. The now and the not yet of the cross. It'll become clear soon what I mean by, by that. Perhaps you've, you've heard that phrase before. We'll, we'll see that in a second. But for now, just picture the scene. Thanks, bro. Picture the scene. Jesus has died. It's over, verse 42. At the end there it says, the evening's coming. Okay, so it's gone, it's been, it's gone dark, it's gone light again, and now evening's coming again. The show is over. So what do the disciples do? They return home. Not only that, they go into hiding, fearing their arrest for their own execution, should they be associated with the Lord Jesus. Everyone scatters. They go back to their own everyday lives. The spectacle's gone, it's done with. And you know what? We can be like those disciples. We can see this incredible cross this morning. We can see what God has achieved. We can hear that our sins are forgiven, how much God loved us to die. We can hear about how his grace has triumphed over his wrath for us. We can feel how we are washed clean. And then we all go home. And you know what? Nothing feels different. It all feels pretty mundane. The show's over. And then come the doubts and the fears that I'm sure those disciples felt. Has Jesus really died for my sin? Is God really no longer angry at me? How could God love me given what's happened in my life? I don't feel washed from that sexual or domestic abuse I experienced all those years ago. Or or, or I don't feel forgiven from that sin that, that, that hampers my past or my present. Has the cross really achieved anything for me and for you? Well, on that first Easter Saturday, it didn't look like an eternity-changing event had
0: happened.
1: Especially not for those disciples. Those women went home. The centurion, wonder what they did when they scattered, went home, probably wondered what it all meant. But there was someone who didn't go straight home. Look at verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, this is important, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Right, here we've got a follower of Jesus who's waiting for the kingdom of God, who's not depressed that Jesus had just died, fearing that the cross had achieved nothing. He was someone, right, in possession of jesus cold and dead body looking to him to bring the kingdom of god and trusting that he would verse 46 joseph bought some linen cloth took down the body wrapped it in linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb you can you can almost sense his anticipation his expectation of resurrection sunday around the corner you know, after so we've seen so many times in the Gospel of Mark, haven't we? How Jesus has predicted that he's going to rise from the dead. And where are his disciples? They're back at base camp, hiding, depressed, with their hope buried in that grave. But what about you? Do you doubt that this has worked for you? That while you get excited about it on Good Friday, by the time you get home, do you know what? It doesn't feel like anything eternity changing has happened in your life. Well, if that's you, Mark wants us to take hold of this final lesson. The now and the not yet of the cross. This is what I mean, friends. If you've given your sin to Jesus, you are in the Father's arms now. Your sins are forgiven now. They are buried and left in that grave with Jesus now. And yet, so long as we're in this world, today is that Good Friday evening. Today is Easter Saturday. It's not Resurrection Sunday yet resurrection sunday is still to come our lives are still hampered with sin and doubt and fear and death and confusion and anxiety and boredom and discontentment and worry about whether our sins are forgiven we ask ourselves has the cross worked is it enough to save me and the answer this morning is yes it has worked it's worked now and yet resurrection sunday is still to come like Joseph of Arimathea, who buried Jesus looking forward to what he hadn't seen yet, we look to Jesus' grave as the place where our sins, past, present and future, are buried. And yet, unlike Joseph, we live in the full knowledge of what happened three days later. Jesus' resurrection, his rising from the dead, proved that the cross has worked for you. That you are forgiven, free and washed. The Apostle John later in the New Testament expands on this now and the not yet of the cross. He says this, we are children of God now and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when Christ appears we will be like him. The now and the not yet. The cross gives us a certain hope now of what's coming our way in the future. This certainty we have is sealed by the precious blood of jesus it's stored in heaven for all who would come to the foot of the cross and it's shown in our lord, in our worship of our lord jesus christ this morning god the son who was crushed to death so that we would stand forgiven washed restored and free to swim in those vast floodwaters of god's love and kindness shall i pray